What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Deer Veins Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Heller, and today we have an awesome guest from Exodus Trail Cameras. His name's Jake Hoffer, and he is... Jake, are you one of the owners? Uh, yes. Yes? Okay, yeah. So he's one of the owners of Exodus Trail Cameras. Uh, he's been with them for a few... You guys have been in business for three years, four years? This is actually our fifth, in May, it'll be our fifth year of shipping cameras. Okay. And then I've, I've been with them for, uh, the beginning of this year was the third year that I've been with them. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's Jake, obviously, who you're hearing. And I started using Exodus Trail cameras probably two years ago or so. And in general, the reason I kind of moved over to you guys was because you have a theft warranty, which like piqued my interest a lot. And then after buying a couple cameras, just became very set, and I just, I really like them. They work really well. They turn on every time. You saw my post this weekend about, you know, some other show cameras that I still have in in my library and uh, and still use, but sometimes they don't work. Sometimes they do work, and it's just a huge pain. Uh, but, yeah, you guys, and you keep it simple, too, because you only have three cameras kind of a, a lower end but still high quality camera at 150 bucks which is the trek and then you have the lift 2 is that around like 250 bucks is that right uh 229 two, okay 229 and then you have the new cell cam which came out what like 4 or 5 months ago or something yeah we started shipping that last um august i think is when we actually started shipping that and that retails for 335 okay yep so they have three cameras and they're all covered by the theft warranty, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I'll have the five-year yep. warranty. I'll have the theft warranty. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, I was turned on to Exodus because, like, I was like, well, you know, you go to Cabela's or you go to Bass Pro Shop, and there's 100 cameras, and some are $55, some are $58, some are 64 some are, you know, 72 And then you get, like, and you get all the way up to, right, like, the Reconyxes and the, the high-end, like, the $600 cameras. And there's so much out there. I just wanted, I and I, you know, I don't want to have to call like Browning or Moultrie or Wild Game or any of those people because I feel like they're just big companies. And if you call them, you're just going to get passed around and maybe they'll honor their warranty, maybe they won't. So I like working with small companies that are simple and easy to use and you just call and somebody's there to talk to you and they can handle anything. So that's how I, that's why I started finding you guys and, yeah, just having three cameras, I was like, cool. And when I found you, you only had two. So, mm-hmm. um, and it just, I mean, and they work phenomenally. So, anyway, very happy you guys made the product and everything. But, uh, but anyway, that's, I'm talking a lot. So let's talk about how did you guys, so tell me your story, cause it's Exodus Outdoor Gear, correct? Tell, tell me your story. Tell us how you got yeah. to where you are. So, um, <clears throat> actually it's kind of funny how it all worked out. I was writing for a website called Wide Open Spaces during college uh, to help pay rent. <laughs> and uh, a part of that was uh, finding different products to cover and do reviews. So that was when Exodus was releasing their very first camera, the Exodus Lift 1. And I reached out for a uh, a product in exchange for a review that will rank, uh, you know, with SEO and all that in mind. And so I actually hopped on a call with uh, three of the founders at the time and talked all about cameras and released that review. And then fast forward into my senior year of college, I needed to uh, fulfill a internship to get my degree. So I had originally, I originally had a internship lined up with a real estate attorney, 
And I was like, man, I really don't want to do that. And I happened to be going to the ATA side. <laughs> so we had a, a set up a meeting with Exodus and pitched them on getting an internship. And then uh, from there was their first full-time employee. And then um, things have kind of transgressed from there. And it's been a, a really fun journey. Oh, that's awesome. Man, yeah, you uh, – like a lot of people, who, like the younger crowd, uh, most of my friends in college, they ended up working at the place that they got their internship as well. You know, mm-hmm. what? Uh, what's your degree in? <laughs> it's funny. I have a – I guess my formal degree is law enforcement and justice administration. I had a minor in marketing. Uh, when I was okay, going yeah, through college, did? though – Yeah, and then when I was going through college, I was doing a ton of things outside of – outside of college that were all business, you know, uh, business-centric and marketing-centric and e-commerce and web development. So I really just kind of got the degree, uh, went through the four-year process and was hustling outside of school the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that makes, that makes sense. And a lot of these, I mean, you know, an internship is a great way to get started with a company, too, because a lot of people mm-hmm. don't want to take a, take the risk on hiring someone full-time you know, right off the bat and having to pay you forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars to get started, you know, why not pay somebody and just dabble in them, you know, as a person to see like if they're worth your time or not for a few months and, you know, pitching them on an internship is a great way to do it. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, if you want to work in the outdoor industry and you have a company uh, that you want to work for, pitch them on an internship because it's really relatively very low risk for the company, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and, I even offered, yeah. I even offered to work for free, uh, because my other internship, uh, was unpaid, but they, they did pay me, but, um, went in there with nice. no expectations. And, um, I guess that would, yeah, that would definitely be my best piece of advice. If you have value, track down a company that you think you would work well with and go in with no expectations and who knows what could happen. Right. No, it makes sense. That's how, you know, like the hunting public, those guys. Like, they were all interns mm-hmm. at Midwest Whitetail, then they got full-timers at Midwest Whitetail, and now they're on their own and doing their own thing. Exactly. You know? Um, yeah, I turned I interned at a uh, pheasant hunting ranch, actually. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was and that was fun. You know, I just, like, again, I, ma- I majored in business admin, and marketing was kind of like uh, my emphasis. And uh, I got it in marketing, but I ended up just planting birds and guiding people all the time. right yeah it's awful so bad (laughs) really yeah um okay so and then and then like fast forward you are where you are today and so it says exodus like it's a the parent company is exodus outdoor gear then correct yeah so um it is exodus outdoor gear but we've been just focused on trail cameras from here on out there's been some things that we've looked at um, outside of trail cameras and it's a really competitive space and we're still a pretty uh, young company. So with any sort of expansion that would not pan out well, um, it just, it's probably yeah. not worth the risk. So we, we stick to what we know right now and there may be a day where we extend that product line out to different product categories, but right now we're extremely focused on just cameras. Sure. So like that, that's one of my questions I have for you. Like the trail camera market is, super saturated, right? There's mm-hmm. just a million out there, everybody and their brother. You know, now Walmart has their own, like, Tasco $30, like, you know, piece that's out there. One in three are broken out of the box. Um, so how, like, why or how did you guys decide to move into trail cameras? And, like, how has it been building up that market? 
Yeah, so I, I can't speak on the very first day, but I this is I guess uh, what I what I know about it was um, it was a situation where there were consumers and were extremely frustrated with cameras not working or um, companies not backing up their product with you know whether it's a warranty or you know like you mentioned trying to track someone down and get help, and they felt like they could solve that issue, so they came out with uh, the Exodus Lift One and tried to solve all those problems and you know being an extremely accessible company. For customers and have the industry leading warranty, the Exodus five year warranty, and also include the theft and damage coverage, which no no camera company still uh, no no companies match that still to this day. So that was kind of how things got started. And then obviously, as you mentioned, there's a ton of options, and there's um, we're, we're consumer direct as well. So the the whole landscape, and we've talked about it on our podcast, Trail Cam Radio. But there's cameras that are built for the retail environment and you know those those cameras are to build a certain be at a certain price point and not necessarily be as um, end user focused as what our cameras are because we don't have to hit any sort of particular prices uh, we just right. build the best camera that we think uh, that we can for a certain price that people would be willing to pay so um, yeah. aside from that too we our whole thing is this lifetime value of the customers um, getting people in our pipeline and providing value first and not asking for, um, you know, sales and all those different things. We're simply just providing value, teaching people about trail cameras that necessarily isn't accessible in other places, or at least in unbiased fashion. So we call a spade a spade and hopefully educate people on, on trail cameras from the componentry and uh, all the different things that go into it. Yeah. No, and I, and I apologize if we, if we cover a few redundant things, I'm sure, You've been on a million podcasts anyway, so you've, I'm sure you've said a few things a, a few different times. <laughs> but uh, I, I am, like, before we move into, like, like the camera parts and all that stuff, because I am actually interested in that. I'm sure a lot of people, other people are too, because, you know, what's the difference between a $60 camera and a $90 camera? And is it all about trigger speed, or you know, and kind of asking those questions. But one thing that, and Jake, you don't need to comment on this at all if you don't want to, uh, but re- the retail environment for anybody that's not super accustomed to it, most products that you find on the shelf are marked up 100%. So, like, if, say, Cabela's is selling it for $200, that means they bought it for roughly $100. So, mm-hmm. generally, like, your trail cameras that you're looking at, you know, if it's a $100 trail camera, Cabela's probably bought it for 50 bucks, And uh, it, it's not more. And so... You know, if you're comparing, like, a consumer direct company like Exodus or any of the consumer direct companies that are coming out um, in the hunting industry, you know, their Exodus Trek is $145. And if that camera were in Cabela's, Cabela's would be trying to sell it for 300 bucks. So that's kind of what you're looking at in terms of a, a price comparison. So you're looking at a, a camera that's, extremely high quality that's a $300 camera but it's only being sold for 1 145 because you don't have that retail markup right and that's why so many companies are going consumer direct now because you can make a better quality product at a lesser price yeah definitely yeah, I, mean, the, yeah. The, uh, I think the render is probably the best way to illustrate that too I mean that's a cell camera that's guaranteed for five years and it retails for 335 um, it would not be crazy to think that that camera could garner much more in the retail environment. Um, but part of the value proposition is providing 
uh, the best cameras who our customers have an affordable cost and, you know, us having an honest markup and that, you know, just because we're consumer direct doesn't mean, um, and I guess with, with this being said is with more and more consumer direct companies popping up, there's opportunity for them to ultimately make a larger margin because they're still going to mark that up, you know, two times or, you know, in, increase that supply, that false supply chain to where they're pretending like they're Arcabellas and they're getting the full Right. Margin yeah, on top exactly. of that, but but we're not we we haven't done that, and I think that's reflected in the price and quality of our cameras. Yeah, no, and that that is something that I'm that I'm sure you're you're getting that because I say it's a three hundred dollar camera at Cabela, so why shouldn't you sell it for two hundred or two fifty? It'd still be less, right, for the same quality of camera. But no, that makes that makes perfect sense because you don't want to rip off your customers because eventually they'll figure it out and then you're going to lose them, right? And that's that loses the whole loyalty piece the whole thing exactly yeah no that makes a lot of sense that's great that's great to hear that because i i work for a company that's in that that similar fashion like you know we do a lot of work in healthcare environments and once you get working with a hospital they kind of just open up their checkbook you know and Mm -hmm. but we still charge the same amount every single time even though we don't have to like you know we could up it like some people but we don't you know over time um but uh no that, that makes a lot of sense and you did mention one other thing earlier, you guys, if, if you are really interested in the Exodus cameras and hearing more about them, uh, Jake has their own, they have their own podcast called the Trail Cam Radio, so definitely go check that out. I listen to, I don't know, I probably got like 20 or 30 episodes under my belt, and it's pretty good, um, really great information there, a lot of fun guests and stuff, so yeah, good good conversation there. So I, I, I thought I had to throw you a plug there, Jake. I forgot about that. I appreciate that. Appreciate <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, uh, tell me a little bit about like how you guys decide what parts to put in the camera and how you guys do that. Yeah. So I, I will be transparent. Chad handles a lot of the engineering or product engineering on that end. Um, what I can say about it is, um, with something like the, the lift two, we know we're going to be right around that 229, uh, price range to build out a camera that is going to kind of meet, meet our expectations and, and demands. So um, each component, there's a ton of different options, and really you're just cobbling together different parts from different industries into this camera and, and getting it on the PCB board. Um, so as far as, you know, the sensor is a really big thing, the lens, um, you know, there's just so many different things that go into it that sure. have to, you know, those, those, that, those components have to last five years. So, it's really just selecting all the right pieces that are going to work together for a long time at a affordable cost. Got it. Okay. So like in a, in a camera, you have, you know, you have like the screen that you work on, you have the, you know, the user interface, which are the buttons. Uh, you got the sensor, the lens, you said, obviously there's some sort of, uh, is there something like a trigger speed in there? Is that built into the sensor or how does that that's worked into the process, the processor of the camera. So yeah, okay. that's another thing like, yeah. um, you know, there's different processing speeds and then you have to have the firmware that works with the processor. And the processor is extremely powerful. It's more limited. The, the firmware is more limited than what the processor can do. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And I know like one of the other nice things was, um, when, uh, what was it? Was it a, uh, software update for the Lift 2 came out? Like I think mid last year or early last mm-hmm. year, because you guys were having issues that you said, 
oh, yeah, here's here's a way to solve it, and you really pushed it out on everybody. Everybody got an email. Everybody got information. I thought that was really cool because then I could update mine um, right away and make sure that, you know, everything was square with it. Yeah, that's one thing. So, we continue to try to improve our products even after release. Um, there's certain things that we feel that we can improve on. And with the lift view of the stability uh, thing that we can definitely improve on with that camera. So um, a lot of manufacturers are releasing different firmwares. They're on our website underneath the support tab. And regardless of what cameras you're running, uh, we always suggest to make sure that you're running the most recent firmware uh, to pretty much avoid any situations that, that the manufacturer has since figured out since releasing the product. Sure. No, and that's, and that's great because a lot of people would just release a new camera, right? And be like, oh, yeah, that's a problem with the old camera. Here's a new one. Buy another one. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's really how I've seen it done previously, too. And for anybody that doesn't know their, their product line, the Exodus Trek is the one that's at $149 or $45. The Lift 2 is at 229 and the Render, what was that, 339 335 yep. 335, yeah. So, and the render is the cell cam, which I have yet to get into those. Have you guys seen pretty good sales on those? Yeah, we've, we've struggled to keep them in stock. We actually just ran out of stock again in February, and then uh, with the coronavirus and everything, it's probably going to be a little bit later um, until we get more. But um, oh, it's yeah. done It's done fantastic, and people that have gotten their hands on them, they keep reordering more and more. Uh, they're definitely addicting and fun to use, so uh, that's my disclaimer to you. Once you get into the wormhole of, of cell cameras, I think it's, it's going to be uh, really eye-opening for you. Uh, I believe it, and it's uh, it's kind of one of those things that I that is uh, for me personally. Like everybody has kind of their their ethical or moral boundaries on how much how much technology is too much technology, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, like when the Garmin site came out last year, you know, and everybody's like, oh, that's too much technology. You shouldn't be using that. You know, that's, you know, you don't have any, you know, skill anymore or anything like that. Um, And the cell cams, just in general for me, like I would 100% be checking my phone all the time (laughs) on it for sure. And I would also, like, I understand that it would be, fantastic because my the property that i hunt is an hour and a half away and mm-hmm. uh, my co-worker consistently shows me pictures of bucks that are on his property in new york and i'm out of wisconsin so mm-hmm. he sends he sends me pictures and shows me i'm like hey dude check out this buck i just got on camera check out this you know so it makes me want to have one but i mm-hmm. also really enjoy the fact of not knowing you know like i i just i enjoy the fact of i don't know what's what's there right now. So I'm going to go spend, you know, two hours on the property collecting all my cars and then checking them all. I, I like, there's a little nostalgia there for on that. Yeah. I can definitely see that. And I still, I still get excited for card pulls year round, uh, regardless of, uh, even if bucks are shut or not, I still get excited, but um, I will just say right. this, it's, yeah. it's cool just to, to help limit that pressure. Uh, I'm hunting a lot of small parcels by permission. So just eliminating some of that foot pressure per se um, I think will be beneficial, and I, I definitely think everyone will have that. I guess inner conversation with themselves on on what's too much. Um, I haven't had the situation where it's like a situation where I I see a certain buck is in the area, and I leave my house and try to go get them. That hasn't happened yet, um, and I don't know if sure. I would do that either. Yeah, that's so. That's one of the yeah. That's one of those ethical, what somewhat ethical dilemmas. Like I heard a 
uh, podcast, like I think last year it was uh, Gritty Bowman, Brian Call, mm-hmm. and he had they had that cuttyback link system on the property, and mm-hmm. they knew that this buck took a specific route, and he ended up uh, getting him on trail camera on like two trail cameras before his, and they know that this buck goes from that from trail camera A to B to C. And then it goes to this tree stand. So he was in that tree stand, and he was just like, all right, I'm ready for him. Let him come. And to me, that's like, that doesn't seem very fun. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it does, it, it removes a lot of the, the thrill and excitement. Like, all right, he's coming, you know, and uh, you just know that it's, that it's happening. And rather than, oh, yeah. shit, there he is at 30 yards type of deal. Mm-hmm. I would definitely um, do that. Yeah, but I, I totally get what you mean by having uh, – by reducing pressure, because if I were dropping cameras kind of, like, right in or outside of tight bedding areas, yeah, I would definitely consider using that uh, a cell cam because then you're not putting that pressure there. But a lot of the cameras that I'm dropping are, are not. They're on travel travel areas to and from kind of fields and outside of not even close to real bedding areas. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I put them right now. But uh, another nice thing is like public land. If you're having, if you really want to see if people are out there or what's going on out there, I mean, there's enough pressure and enough problems with hunting public already that I could see a cell camera being of, of great use. You just need to hope that nobody steals it. <laughs> right? Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely have all the precautions of you know the theft deterrence of hanging it high up in a in a civil or in a lockbox as well. One thing that we can do is we can go in and look at, um, pull the IP of the device from Verizon as long as it's connected and give you a really good idea where it's located at. It's not quite like um, down to the, you know, down to the foot, like where it is with your phone GPS, but it'll give you a, a really close idea. So there is that. Oh, um, so if it gets yeah, stolen so, and somebody pulls it and like just, you know, leaves it in their truck, you can find out where it is. Yeah, pretty pretty darn close to where it would be. Now, it still has to be a connected device here. It still has to be connected. Um, sure. But, yeah, that's definitely an option. Right. Well, and you also, on all your cameras, you also have the security code as well, right? Yeah. Like, you need to, yep, you have the security code. So, like, if somebody calls you, they're like, hey, I forgot it, then you need to verify that it's registered to that camera and that user and stuff like that, and then you can help them out. But other than that, like, if somebody steals the camera and it's security code protected, like, they're out of luck, and the camera's nothing. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, it's basically a, yeah. a paperweight. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense. And uh, I, yeah, I could see using the cell cameras on some of the public that I hunt. Um, but the, you you bring up a good point on on hanging your cameras high, locking them up, put them in a lockbox. You know that that trick has become. I started doing that like three, four years ago, and I thought I was really ingenious with it. And then right as I kind of posted some about it. Like, a bunch of other people started posting the same thing. I was like, oh, man, I thought I had something cool here that other people hadn't thought of. It's just that maybe I, I was late, but I was one of the first people that I knew to post something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I still do it to this day, and I still get it. You know, it's not even that people see it and they, like, can't steal it. It's that they don't even see it. Exactly. You know, I get so many pictures. of If I ever go into an area and I think, that it's going to be a high traffic area and I'm not quite sure about how much pressure really is there. It's kind of for those, 
like honey holes that where I'm like, all right, this is only 200 yards from the parking lot, but I think it could be a decent spot and maybe no one else has found it yet. Um, then I'll, I'll hang them high, lock them up completely. And, uh, and most of the time people don't even see them. You know, every yeah. now and then I'll get somebody to look at them, but 90, 90% of the time no one even sees it, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I had a camera stolen this year on a piece of public and then, um, I kind of abandoned that small little area and, and went, I don't know, maybe 200 yards north of there. And then I hung a camera with a swivel bracket and I put paracord around that um, and had it angled perfectly along the branch. So, it's, I mean, someone would really have to be looking to see it. And the amount of hunting pressure that I got on camera, people walking by completely oblivious, uh, was really remarkable because on all my other cameras, I never had people walking by, and it just kind of goes to show that maybe people see your cameras and they avoid it, and you don't get a true idea of what the hunting pressure is there. So this uh, sure. a hidden a hidden camera just gives you a lot more true and accurate data, and that includes people and deer. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I never even thought about that. Maybe the cameras that they are seeing, they're just walking around like, ah, there's a camera. I don't want to let somebody else know that I'm here or something like that. I can mm-hmm. see that for sure. I've had a few of my cameras. Uh, uh, the I don't always lock the actual lock, like the actual uh, opening where you get at the controls and whatnot. I don't mm-hmm. always lock that just because I only have limited locks and I'm too dumb and or too, you know, resistant <laughs> or stubborn to buy them on buy them on Amazon. And I've mm-hmm. had people that don't realize that and they'll break off the bottom piece. You know how it flips down. Yep. And then you can get at the control. They'll break that off by tapping out the bottom pin. And I've had it happen twice now. And then they take the card and leave the camera because the camera's locked up. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they'll pull the card and break that piece off. And I'm like, ah, why? <laughs> Just yeah. Take, like, why you got to be like that? <laughs> yeah, that's super frustrating. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's super frustrating, especially, like, if you've left it there for, like, a month or two and it's in a great spot. You're like, ah, man. Just wanted to see. Um, yeah, there's so much, so much anticipation that goes into going to check a camera that you haven't seen for, you know, I haven't checked for maybe a month or two during peak times, and you're so pumped, and then that's so deflating. Right? Yeah, for sure. And I always, I will generally pull all my cameras, unless they're in great spots, uh, on the public land. This is, I'll pull them all uh, right about October 28th or 29th. And I'll pull, like, I have 10 cameras. If I pull, I'll pull seven of them on that October 28th, 29th, because people just, like, something in, in bow hunters' minds say it's Halloween, I need to be in the woods for the next two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the land that I hunt goes from, you know, five bow hunters to 40 in, you know, a week. And so I pull all my cameras at that time, and I'll leave a couple select few. But then I always pull them before gun season because, have, like, there's just outrageous amounts of gun hunters in Wisconsin. This year is 550,000. And it's, uh, yeah, so it was, it, there's just outrageous amounts of them, and you never know who's going to just stumble into it, right? You know, you're doing drives, people are walking around doing whatever, and they just stumble into your cameras, and then, boof, there goes your card, or there goes your camera, especially when they're walking around with a gun. I had one guy years ago shoot it. Um, I couldn't identify him. It was a, it was an old, it was an old enough camera that I could tell it was a person. You know, obviously mm-hmm. I knew it was a person there. And then I, like, that was the last picture I had was like a blurry person. Um, 
and then it was uh the the camera was shot with a shotgun. <laughs> uh, uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I was like why why? <laughs> you know, I didn't, I don't think you were doing anything illegal, but whatever. Um anyway. Uh yeah. So okay, so that's like a bunch of camera stuff there. Moving on, next thing. Uh winter trail camera strategies. Like I have I just redeployed all my cameras back out on Saturday. Yeah. Um, and I have my own thoughts, but what do you like to do? Like, do you hang winter cameras? Do you not hang winter cameras? If so, where do you put them? Tell me about that. Yeah, right now I'm actually pulling some cameras. Um, however, I think I checked some cameras this past weekend, and I still had bucks holding and hitting licking branches and actually sparring. Um, I, I saw, wow, well, one's probably a one and a half year old, the other one's a two and a half year old, and they both have the licking branch. Uh, the day was February, I think, 14th or 13th. And they were still sparring, holding their antlers, and, and using that licking branch. So I have really good luck, luck in higher huh. density areas with licking branches all the way into February. And so that's okay. kind of a one good litmus test. And then here in Illinois, you, you can't bait or uh, use mineral licks or anything like that. So you kind of have to get creative. And I, regardless of the year, I pretty much live and die by licking branches. Um, on top of that, being in Illinois, there's obviously the big ag field and the draws and ditches going out to those. Um, I have really sure. good luck um, with that. And then even on some oak ridges, you can see where they're feeding. And I usually have cameras up on top of some of those. And with snow, it's a lot easier to tell where they're eating and bedding. And this time of year, I'll I'll be super aggressive with placing them. And if I'm going to leave them out now, I'm going to leave them out for you know at least probably four weeks at a time. So I don't have a problem with with putting it right on their, their bedding area on an oak ridge uh, with a feeding and eating right there. So I guess that's uh, three good starting points, in my opinion. Sure. And by, okay, so at, by licking branches, like, would you consider those scrapes as well, or are those only licking branches with no scrapes? Um, so these, these these usually have scrapes with them as well. Uh, they just still have an okay. active an active licking branch. And then the one that I just checked, that was actually, I took a grapevine, and I used a bunch of zip ties and attached it to a tree. And this scrape, this was in a bottom where there's tons of scrapes, and this piece does not have much structure at all. It's literally just, uh, I would say probably 25, 30 acres of this tall grass and fallen over trees, and there's, there's just not a lot of structure or cover. But there's always scrapes all over the place. So I made this um, licking branch slash scrape in early November this year. And it's already become kind of a a area of interest, I guess, for all the deers that go out to feed to the ag field to the south of there. And so sure. it's it's really compounded since then. So this is in this one it's a grapevine. Um some of my other favorite licking branches or scrapes are usually oaks and um I've had really good good luck with those and they do some of these are only good one year at a time and I don't know if it's pressure related on my end or you know what exactly it is, but I'm constantly looking for good looking branches that are uh, community scrapes year round and, and making a mental note of it. Are, yeah. Okay. So are you, so the grapevine one that you're talking about, that one's man-made. Are you yes. always making your, your looking branches or are you finding like existing ones as well? Um, I, I try to find existing ones as well too. So last year, and this is a pretty good example um, last year, the same one where I put a licking branch this year with the grapevine, it 
it was postseason scouting. I found this community scrape that was absolutely tore up outside of a, a doe bedding area. And there was a really, really large typical whitetail. And I knew of him in the area, but not necessarily spending a ton of time on the farm I was hunting. So I made a mental note of that last year. And then I put a, a camera on that in October. And sure enough, that particular buck was in there pretty frequently in late October. So that's another thing, too, when you're out there looking for winter locations. If you find a community scrape that looks like it's tore up and it's right outside doe bedding, you know, drop a pin on Onyx because there's a really good chance you need to have a camera there, um, you know, September, October, because it's probably going to provide some really good intel. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I highly agree with that as well. Like, I, I'll, I'm i a huge fan of scrapes over rubs, uh, for sure, on that. I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm a big fan of that. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of these, a lot of these scrapes that I find are, are right now, you know, and getting out in the winter and putting on the miles and finding them and dropping cameras because you just, like, the, the information is just out there to find, and it's pretty easy to find it all right now, and especially scrapes and scrapes and uh, licking branches because there's no leaves, so you can clearly see where everything is. And, uh, and then marking all those, yeah, and then I move my cameras around during season to see which scrapes are most active because some are like you know one-offs or they they're hit you know every couple days or something like that and others are hit every day by deer and Mm -hmm. it's moving your cameras enough to figure out which ones are those ones that are being hit all the time right and those Mm -hmm. is that how you identify a community scrape or how do you go about identifying one um so the best way that i found as far as identifying it, or at least the most productive scrapes, in my opinion, are the ones that are closest to um, bedding, you know, typically doe bedding for actually hunting them, and then for, you know, outside of a bedding area for, for bucks or, you know, an area where two dominant bucks are coming uh, close to at least in the same home range. Those scrapes are really productive for as far as bucks, um, mature bucks. So I guess... I, I guess the answer to that is just simply trying to relate it to betting to the to the best of your ability. Sure. So as, as close, like, so I'm out there winter scouting right now, and I find, mm-hmm. you know, eight beds all right next to each other and, like, you know, a half acre, a quarter acre piece. Like, they're all right in this area, eight, nine, ten beds, probably smaller than that. I'm not a quarter acre. Like, you know, 20 yards. They're all right in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm moving around that bedding area, and I find – you know, a scrape, like, then that's, you're kind of like, all right, that's likely to be a community scrape. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can tell this, you know, a true community scrape usually has a really good-looking branch, and it's visually very large, too. Um, sure. But it's not not to be said that it's, it's a smaller scrape outside of that bedding area. Um, still, if you, if you have a camera to your disposal, I would, I would definitely consider that strongly. Yeah. I call, yeah, the, so I've found a few community scrapes in the last couple of years that I've, I learned about them about three years ago. And since then, I've kind of been peeling my eyes for them. Mm-hmm. And I like to, I call them meteor holes because generally they're dug into the ground. The scrapes, they've been there so habitually year over year over year, and they're hit so much that they're actually an indent in the ground. Wow, I have I haven't come across a ton of those. Um, there's a couple where oh, okay. you can just definitely tell, but I'm sure 
uh, depending on the deer density of your area, yeah, it could be easier or harder to find. No, yeah. Than, and that is, like, those – I hunt a lot of swamps, so the, mm-hmm. the ground is really soft. Oh, nice. Right, so so it's it's not like they can sh- they can shovel that dirt out, um, but that's when I know like in in a lot of this public that I hunt that it's like holy cow this is you know it's you know a, like half the size of a full half the size of a full dinner table and it's you know an inch deeper two inches deeper than all the surrounding ground and all mm-hmm. the branches above it are broken like I'm like yep this is a community mm-hmm. scrape and this is where I need to be. You know, in mid October, <laughs> mid to late October. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and one of the one of the other things that I really enjoyed with with like the scrapes and stuff, and and you mentioned Onyx, is I like to find as many scrapes as I can, and I mark them all on Onyx, and then I drop cameras, and then I'll look at them on Onyx, and a lot of times there's actually like a pattern to them. There's like a line that you can draw from one to the next to the next. And you can actually see how the deer move through that area um, by hitting those uh, scrapes. Like if they hit them all in a lateral, you know, motion or on a on a single trail or something like that. And then you can drop a camera on, you know, scrape six or seven, and then also drop a camera on scrape one, and and then correlate like, okay, if they're here, if they hit scrape one first, are are they actually going all the way to scrape six? Are they making their way through that hole? that whole scrape line there, you know, and which ones are most productive and stuff like that. I, I really enjoy trying to figure that out because you never like, you never, when you get into an area where there's a decent scrape and this is, I'm kind of rambling here. This is kind of a theory that I'm testing in general is I like, there's certain trails that are kind of like the interstate, like deer get on them and then deer get off them at different points. You know, and I always try to figure out where where are most deer on that travel route, and then where do they get on and off that travel route. You know, it's generally, you know, food sources or bedding areas or something like that. But uh, moving the cameras has really helped me figure out how to hone in on, you know, where the most high-traffic scrape is and the high-traffic travel route is, and then you go hunt that versus hunting, you know, stuff that isn't nearly as high-traffic. That's a that's something that I just really like to do. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So, okay, so you're you're dropping your winter cameras on on scrapes on egg fields. You ever have problems with turkeys in your egg field? As far as like turkeys right. constantly tricking my cameras? Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess person I wouldn't consider it a problem because I still turkey out in the spring. <laughs> okay. But but it hasn't been anything. I guess too. Uh, too out of the ordinary. It sounds like you have a lot of turkeys by you. Uh, I I do. So, like, we got this new property, and I went out there, I don't know, in January or so, and uh, we have two kind of 15-acre egg fields on this property, and one of them wasn't hit at all. Like, the snow was very clean and fresh. The other one was just tore up, like something had been in there forever. And I knew there were turkeys in there, like there were tracks and the scratching and everything. So, I, But there were also a lot of deer tracks too. So I put a camera on kind of this point that juts out into the field where a lot of the activity was happening, and I had 4,000 pictures of turkeys in two weeks. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm, I'm done with this. You know when they just sit out there all day, and I have it on a three-shot burst as well. Yep. So it's just, 
it, you know, it just filled, it filled up. I was, I was super excited when I looked at the camera. I was like, oh, yes, I'm going to have some nice bucks on here. It's going to be awesome. I was nervous that it was all, a lot of it was turkeys, but I didn't think all of it was going to be turkeys. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, it, was, it was awesome, but disappointing at the same time. Uh, but, uh, but okay. So one of the other, one of the other, so what I did about that, I guess, based on that is I moved my cameras off the, if anybody else is having that problem, I moved my cameras off the field edge to the deer trails that enter and exit from the field edge. And that way the pictures I get are generally deer and not turkey. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the way I've combated that. Um, okay. Do you have, uh, do you have any other thoughts? Like, do you, I know you posted kind of like a, a trail camera maintenance thing mm-hmm. that you, people can do when they, can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So if you are pulling your cameras this time of year, there's some, some pieces of advice that we have. And I guess just kind of going through them quickly is make sure you take out the batteries and don't, okay. especially, especially if you're, we saw, we saw this at the Great American Outdoor Show. Uh, there's a couple of people that came up and said, my cameras aren't working. They happen to have it with them. And then you look at the battery tray and it's just, you know, leaked batteries everywhere. And um, <laughs> you can just see the reason why they're not working is because there's not a true connection uh, with the batteries and battery tray connecting to the camera. So anyways, make sure you take the batteries outside, out of your camera. Um, and if you're using lithium batteries, go ahead and sort those so you can reuse them. But but don't mix and match them with, with different cameras because you want to make sure Take the eight batteries out of the camera, put them in a Ziploc bag, make sure they're not touching, uh, you know, end to end. And then also just give it a good thorough look, clean out any sort of dirt, uh, give it a good kind of quick bath per se. And you also want to check and see if there's any different firmware updates available for your camera. Um, that's kind of just a best practice. And then storing them, try to leave them in a dry area away from computers or any sort of other electronics. And so I know it's just kind of funny because we've talked about it on, on trail cam radio as well as everyone's super manic, manic, uh, particular with their bows and they put the bow string, they take it to the shop, they get it tuned up again after the season, um, you know, to hang it above their desk or whatever the case may be. And then like the cameras, they just let them float around in their car for until the summer. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? So that's, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they just go in a box in the corner or in, they stay in the backpack that they were pulled out of the field with. And exactly. Yeah, so no. give the cameras a little TLC, um, you know, treat them like an electronic because that's what they are at the end of the day. And uh, just, just, just be mindful of that. No, I, yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I'm I'm guilty of that. I'm still guilty of it. You know, I have cameras sitting out there, but uh, but that's what the five year warranty's for, right? Yeah, I mean, ultimately we have you covered. <laughs> we have you covered, but um, if you want it to to last well beyond that five year mark, uh, right. doing those little things will help. Yeah, no, I'm and I'm just playing with you. Yeah. Um, the uh, the theft warranty. Can you explain mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So if a camera was stolen and you, you register that camera on our website. So we have a hard copy of who you are and, you know, the camera that's associated to you. And if it was ever stolen, um, you simply just reach out to us and let us know. We'll mark the camera as stolen on our file and we'll give you a one-time coupon code for 50% off. And then if it was, the camera is ever, um, damaged by like a bear or, 
ants or something crazy like that, you can reach out to us once again, and we would give you a 50% off um, replacement for that as well. So a lot of other companies see that as an opportunity to sell you another camera, but we we kind of look at it as uh, we'll sell you on a cost to you know make you happy and also um, help alleviate that pain point because we've all been there, and it's super frustrating. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And like, there's been, uh, last year where I had a camera out that was just filled up with ants. And it's the first time it's, it's been in the same area every, every year. You know, it's a, a habitual spot for it and it just filled up with ants. And, uh, mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, man, what do I even do with this? You know, like it's just completely covered in ants. So I just, I moved it. Like, I obviously pulled it out. I didn't try to kill any of the ants or anything. I just moved it and set it in a totally different area, probably, like, 100 yards away. And I just left it out overnight and came back, and they were all out. I turned it on, and it was working. Wow. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I was just like, all right, perfect. Like, I'm good, but this camera does not go back here um, in this area. It was on uh, one of those stick-and-pick, like, a field pod Mm -hmm. or a field Mm -hmm. tripod deal. Yeah, I never, I've never had the issue, and this year it was not good. Um, but no, that's, that's good to know. We didn't cover that earlier. And a lot of people, uh, when I tell them, like, they have a theft warranty, they're like, well, then why, like, wouldn't you just say your cameras get stolen every year? You know, but the, but the thing is, and I say, well, you only get one, and mm-hmm. nobody's that big of an asshole. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's the best way to put it, yeah. I mean, ultimately, if everyone did it, we would go out of business, so. Uh, thankfully, there's way right. more good people than there are bad people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like that's one of the other reasons why I like to work with, like, smaller companies. A, you always get better service. Just not always, but majority of the time, if it's a good company, like, you get better service. And, uh, and B, like, you, you know, you're there to help these people succeed. Like, you know, so many people want to become, like, you know, in the outdoor industry and they want to become hunters like full-time or whatever you like, professional hunters that are sponsored and all this stuff, yet they don't want to give help to anybody else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, I, I always like to, if, if I can, support a small smaller company rather than, you know, the, the really large, big companies, I, I always will. Um, for, for, most, for most things, um, not always uh, – like I have a Matthews bow, so I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, supporting a small company there. But there's certain things that I, you know, Matthews is just a phenomenal company, so I like using them, and I just don't want to compromise there, um, mm-hmm. or at least risk. I have risked, and I've had a, a bunch of different bows over the last few years, and I just, I don't know if it's me or what, but uh, but anyway, that's that's part of my off season gig is to get a lot better at, at technical archery stuff. So I've been working on that, and that's. That's that's such a rabbit hole, man. Do you ever dive into that? So it's funny you bring that up. I actually bought a recurve uh, <laughs> about two oh, weeks ago. Oh, no way, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I bought a striker bow. Um, we were at the Great American Outdoor Show. It's a 10-day show. And this was the fourth year I was there. And there's a, a booth there, and they have a shooting lane, and they make traditional bows in Ohio. And the last, you know, previous to this year, I've shoot them every year, and I love them. And I get home and I Google them and I watch them on YouTube and I finally broke down and bought one. So I bought an RK1 from <laughs> Stryker and man, that thing is so fun to shoot and I have so much to learn. <laughs> and the rabbit hole is definitely uh, the best way to describe it because there's, you know, there's so much things with even compound bows, but then you look at the recurve and, 
the FOC and all the arrow weights and spines and brace like there's so many different things that I look forward to learning uh, that you know the recurve is gonna kind of make me force me to learn. Yeah, no, I yeah, I've I've been I've been dabbling in that. A friend of mine bought one last two years ago, and he was like, "Dude, you got to get into it." And uh, and it's like you exchange one set of problems with a compound to learning a new set of problems with the recurve. Right. And you know, and there's less inform like not not saying that there's ton ton less information, but it's like less common. So you talk to your own buddies, and they're like, "I don't know, I shoot a compound, you know, and I yeah. shoot mechanical broadheads, so I don't." I, I've never tuned a bow in my life, <laughs> you know, and it's like, wow, shit. <laughs> uh, so yeah. you're on your own, but that'll be awesome. Are you going to use yeah, it for on Yeah, I uh, I hope to kill a Pope and Young with my recurve. That's kind of my goal. Um, I don't know if I'll do that okay. this year, but uh, not retiring the compound is any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I just thought it would be really fun to, to bring out sometimes, and I think it would be an absolute rush to kill you know, a solid buck with it. So I'm really excited yeah. to learn. And, and, uh, there's actually, there's actually, um, a person that developed, that has a whole bunch of bow patents in my area and he has a class and he's uh, an absolute genius in every sense of the word. So I'm going to go to his class and learn all about it. So I think that'll help too. Nice. Yeah. So did you, do you, did you order one that they like, they they make them as they're ordered, or did they make one and like you're like, hey, I want this RK one, and then you already have it. So they do make custom bows, but this one was already at the show, and I shot it. Okay. and I absolutely loved it. It's it's, uh, it's a ditching Kuyu, uh from head to toe, oh, nice. and it's just it's, it looks super clean. And uh, they do make really cool custom bows, but I, I shot that one and liked how it shot, and uh, I bought it right then and there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So you've probably been playing with it a little bit then. Oh yeah. Figuring sure. it all out. Yeah, I, I shot it for you know, I bought it on the last day of the show, so I already shot it basically for ten days. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it was pretty fun. All right. Just roll in before you know you get there. I've done a bunch of trade shows in my life, and it's like you get there early enough that you know no one else is in there. The actual customers aren't in there. You just walk over to the booth. And you're like, hey man, mind if I uh, take a few with this guy? <laughs> <laughs> right. Pretty much, yeah. So those guys yeah. are all great, great people, and it was fun to. I guess they all gave me crap every day I was down there, but I ended up buying one. Yeah. Nah, that's cool. That's awesome. Ah, uh, have you heard? Like, I'm sure you've looked into it, but have you heard of the push? Um, I don't know if I'm familiar with that or not. Okay, so the the push is it's. I think it's called the push archery. They have uh, online videos on like beginner to the most advanced. Uh, recurve and longbow shooting forms and techniques and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, Definitely yeah, want that, to check like, that out. Yeah, I've heard of them a couple times on different, you know, just random podcasts that I listen to. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's I think they're called the Bush Archery. And I don't know yeah, if, right. like, you know how Elk 101 has, like, their class mm-hmm. that you can buy and everything like yeah. that? Yeah, I don't know if they do that or if it's just free on YouTube or, or what they do. But, yeah, it's just something to – some to look. I've watched a few of their videos, and I can't. I just can't remember if it's what it's called exactly. But no, I just uh, pulled it up while you while you mentioned it, and I'll definitely oh, look okay. into that. It'll be helpful. Yeah, there's something for you to spend, you know, three hours looking at tonight. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Speaking of the rabbit hole. Yeah. Um. All right. So, the, well, that that's pretty cool. So, um, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, or I got two other things I want to talk to you about before I let you go tonight. Um, the your buck of 2019 
you shot in November in Illinois, and it's a really gnarly looking mature mature buck. So tell me, like, can you tell me how that story went down? Hey, Jake. Sorry, I think I, I pressed mute there. I think I pressed okay, mute there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I Sorry. hope that's you, not me. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the story behind that buck is actually pretty interesting. I got permission for that property in 2018, and he was actually – that buck was on the very first card pull I ever had in, I think, it was September uh, in Velvet. He was a really solid buck in 2018, probably – I think it's safe to say in the, the 160s. And um, I hunted him all year, and actually he kind of disappeared after about November 15th, and he ended up showing back up in January. And there was a really good cold spell at the end of the year, and I thought I was going to have a chance at him, uh, but I did not see him. It was a situation where I set up off an Oak Ridge, and they were getting ready to go feed on on the aground near, nearby, and I think I saw like 17, 18 deer, and they all came cruising by a single file. And he wasn't the last one. Uh, there's uh, there oh, other nice bucks in that group. Yeah, I thought it was going to happen then. But then, um, so I didn't get him with 2018. I never found a shed or anything like that. I'm, this is a, a really small parcel, too. So it's not like I can uh, get too creative and, and wander too far. So anyways, and this year, I did not, I thought I had him on camera you know, around the 4th of July. I had a, a picture of a really nice buck with points coming out of the bases and I thought that was going to be him but it wasn't him and you know up to this point I haven't seen him and I'm thinking well you know maybe you know maybe he died who knows hard to say and then I was driving around in late October and I saw this deer about three quarters of a mile maybe a mile to where um, I had permission and I saw this deer out in the field and it's like man that's an old looking deer and he had a little bit of a hobble to him and he had a flyer coming off his G2, and I could see that, you know, 300 yards, 200, 250, 300 yards from the road, um, just yeah. see that. And so I whipped up my camera, and I, you know, take some really crappy video of it because <laughs> he's so far away. <laughs> and so then after this point, you know, I, I don't know what that deer is or what. And then on uh, late October, I got a card pull, and I had him on camera. And I was looking through my lift, too, and I saw in the little preview, and I saw, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's him. And he has completely shrunk. Um, and I pressed <laughs> a little video, and he's just like, his back lift, left hip is all messed up. His front right knee has a big knot in it, and he just looks like hell. And um, I was like, crap, oh, like, man. I still want to kill this deer. Uh, he's, you know, a tank in every sense of the word. But this is the first time I'm seeing him now. It's October 22nd. And so I actually hung a set that night, and I didn't see a deer that, you know, didn't see a deer. And then about, uh, I don't know, probably would have been about 10 days later, I went in there and hunted in the morning, same exact stand, and he was the first deer I saw that morning. And it was actually pretty interesting. I was I was about a, a quarter of the way down of a, of a ridge near uh, doe bedding, and my thermals were shooting up and over onto a cliff. And so this particular buck came in, opened up a scrape that wasn't there before, and I hit him Hi. with a doe bleat. Yeah, I hit him with a doe bleat, and he goes away, and then um, he comes <laughs> back, hits the scrape. He comes back and hits the scrape again, because I didn't want to grunt at him, because he looks all beat up, and I'm sure he didn't want to fight. 
but he's obviously looking for right. a kill. And so then I grunted again after the second time he came and worked the scrape, and he was kind of gone. And I remember texting my girlfriend. I was like, I'm just really glad I saw that here. Like, I've been hunting him, you know, a lot, and this is the first encounter I've had a, had with him. And then about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes later, I'm looking in this uh, fallen-down hedge tree, and I just see his front right leg. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a hoof right there. Uh, this is about 40 yards from me. And then, sure enough, it, it moves again. And then uh, he came in, and I shot him at 30 yards. So it was uh, really cool to, uh, <laughs> nice. to kind of put it close to the story. And I, uh, after I killed him, a neighbor sent me a picture of him, and he's like, I'm pretty sure this is your deer from 2015. And that is undoubtedly him. In 2015, you know, same exact frame, tall brow tines. Uh, junk coming off his ranky too, and he looked every bit of four year old, four years old in 2015. So it's I would venture to guess that he's probably nine years old. I sent his teeth in to deer age. Oh man! So I'm yeah. really excited to see how how old he is exactly. Yeah, dang, he that's made, crazy. Yeah, it really is. That's uh, probably the oldest deer that I'll kill in a long, long time. So it's uh, it's yeah. pretty cool. I wish I wish he wouldn't have gone downhill quite as much, but it's always fun to, I guess, how smart a deer that old. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he knows his way around the place. Uh, or he could have just been old and senile and didn't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, that crossed my mind. It was really interesting, though, where um, in September I found a scrape that was already open in 2018, and then this year that scrape did not open up in September or October. And then I actually had him on camera the day before I killed him. I didn't know this until after I killed him, but that scrape opened up as well too. So I think he moved off the farm because all the scrapes that were closed leading up to November were closed. And then when he came onto the farm, they were all opening up and I ended up killing him. So his breeding, huh. breeding routine, he came back and uh, I killed him this time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, yeah, he'd been doing that same routine for, you know, probably six years or so, um, mm-hmm. six, seven years, and now he's like, yeah, he's like, oh, I'll just go do it again, go find my ladies, you know? Yep. Um, no, it's interesting that you say you, you, you dove bleeded at him first just because you didn't think he wanted to fight, which is a great point, you know, it's, if you see, like, a timid deer, you know, it's, you don't always just want to throw out a grunt or especially a snort weed. Right. right, you kind of want to throw that that soft one that says, "Hey, I'm over here, I'm not looking exactly. to hurt you." Exactly, right? and even even going into 2018 too, when he showed back up in January, uh, the situation where this there was a really other a really nice mature buck too, a 10 point last year, a nine point this year, and um, anyways, in 2018, he came in and this the buck I shot came in and worked a scrape in the morning. With his tail tucked, this is in January, with his tail tucked looking super nervous, works a scrape, and then immediately after I have a, a video of that buck coming in and actually tearing up that scrape. Um, and then so Interesting. I had a, yeah, yeah. And then in the spring I had a picture of two bucks, two mature bucks with their antler shed. They're looking at each other, their ears are pinned back like they want to fight. And then rolling into this year when I got a video of him just looking like hell, uh, all hunched up, Immediately after that, I had that same buck that they've always been kind of close to each other, and there's obviously uh, some, you know, some competition. He was on camera right after that as well. So I found it really interesting, and I knew that he 
uh, was definitely timid or did not want to look for a fight because it looked like this buck has beat him up for, you know, two years at least. Yeah. Oh, that's, no, that's interesting. Do you, do you think that that's what, that's why he was going, I mean, obviously he was nine years, nine or ten years old or whatever you think he is. Um, so age plays a factor in, in his reduction in antlers, but also just like getting beat up and bruises. You know, do you like, do you think it, that was another deer beating him up or do you think maybe he got hit by a car or something? It's really hard or, to say. So even last year too, it, there was some videos where he looked somewhat hobbled and this year it was really exaggerated. Um, I would, I would venture to guess that, you know, it's hard to say what was the cause of some of his injuries, but it, you know, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary or out of line to assume that he was getting pushed around pretty much <laughs> and getting beat or gored yeah. or, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah, no, no, it is. I, you know, I just didn't know if you found any, anything after you got him and cut him up and, or if anything was real noticeable on it. Um, yeah, so I, I wish I had, um, I didn't end up, I didn't skin him. I took him straight to the locker, and that's something I regret and wish I did do um, to kind of uh, dissect him a little bit. But when I gutted him, yeah. yeah, when I gutted him, I didn't see anything too out of the ordinary. Um, his back left hip was definitely, you know, busted to some extent. So that was, you know, that. If you watch the video on my Instagram, you can just see how much he was uh, gimping, and his back left hip was definitely goofed up. Okay, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, but no, that's interesting. So then after you killed him, uh, have you, did you get, are you, you know, do you have other bucks on that property that you're like, yep, like I'm after you now? Um, so that one deer that was always with him, he ended up getting killed, uh, during firearm okay. season and he weighed, he field dressed at 256. So when I say Holy. he was a big deer, yeah, he was like a oh, really big deer. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dang. uh, so yeah, he, and he was probably, I don't know, high 40s, low 50s, uh, nine-point frame. But deer, there is some other deer. There's one particular deer that was probably three years old this year that was in the 150s. I, he has the potential to blow up into something special at two. At two years old, he was, this is the first time I've ever had a deer just absolutely blow up. And he was gone MIA from the summer. And then I got him a couple times in December, and now he's finally shown back up in January. So I think... The fact that those two deer are dead now, um, I think that he'll, he'll maybe spend a little more time on my farm. So that's that's a good thing. Yeah, move into the area and start making it his own, for sure. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hoping. So and hopefully it makes another ginormous jump at four. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Um, yeah, I kind of got a, a similar story on the property that I was hunting. I, you know, I'm I'm really interested because. I had a bunch of deer, like I had four what I would what I considered shooters on the property. Mm-hmm. We bought the property in August, dropped all my cameras on it immediately, and uh I had four shooters that were in that one kind of forty to one fifty range, and there was one in there that would have been like one fifty to one sixty. But they mm-hmm. were all like three and a half or four and a half year old deer and uh it was really interesting to me because I was like, man, like, where is the beast? You know, where's that 180 or 190-inch nocturnal animal that you never see? You get one trail camera picture of, right? And he's just he's just in there, and he owns the land, and, like, where is this guy? And uh, I never got a picture of him. One of the neighboring landowners said 
there is one, and it was shot. They called it the reindeer because its its rack was just real messed up. Um, it was just real non-typical. I had a video or photos, plenty of photos, of a really nice non-typical that I nicknamed Groot because he just mm-hmm. looked like he had roots growing out of his head. Um, but I, I showed that, the neighbor. Yeah, I showed the neighbor that one, and he goes, "Oh no, we call that one whale tail." Or kickback <laughs> is what the neighbors uh-huh. call him. He goes, no, the reindeer's bigger than him. It's like his older brother. And mm-hmm. I never got a picture of him, and then he got killed on public during gun season. So, um, but that one got killed, and three of the four shooters I had got killed. So, uh, so it's really interesting. Like, and now my cameras are showing. I don't know if you saw my post the other day, but I have one one Exodus the track on, on my property that has just been a, a phenomenal spot is just the spot I guessed the first day I walked the property and it's been great. And I got four or five new bucks in there that are in that 130 class range, meaning right. hopefully next year they're like, you know, at the end they're going to be in that 150 range, you know, mm-hmm. and back to 2020. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see, how that, news. see how that takes out. Yeah. It's, it's weird though, cause I will say this, there's a, there's a deer that we've had on camera for five years now, this on a different farm. And he's been in like the one, high 140s, low 150s the past five years. And. Oh, really? Yeah, he's, I would bet that he would field dress, you know, 245 plus, and he's like 150 inch frame deer, and that's huh. what he's been for, for five years. So it's, it's funny to see some deer just absolutely jump from a two and a half to a three year old, you know, and so on. And then there's some that just are stuck. So it's, it's, it's fun to see, but, um, I was like shooting old deer and big deer. So, you know, whatever, which one, whatever, whatever one that it is, uh, I'm more than fine with. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I bet. Um, so what's, what's the jump he made from like two and a half to three and a half year old that you notice? Like what's the size jump in the rack? Um, that one that was a, three-year-old that just showed back up he went from like 115 to 150 um oh yeah so like a really 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 big jump um so that's that has me really excited because he could i mean he should be a boon and crockett deer eventually as long as he he survives so yeah it is a pretty high pressure area it's pretty high high pressure hunting area so obviously there's a there's a chance of that but just uh I'm just thankful to chase deer in general. I don't really get too caught up in particular deer because <laughs> I don't own any ground, and uh, things change every year, so I'm just excited to get out there and hunt every year. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree, man. I've hunted – I tallied it up, I think, last year, and with this new property that – so I've been trying to bug my family, my <laughs> mom and dad, mainly my dad because he's also kind of a hunter uh, to mm-hmm. buy – to buy land and he's always just wanted land just to have it so Mm -hmm. this year we finally got some uh like i finally talked him into it and it's because i made it his idea like i showed him a property i said hey you know what about this property on craigslist it looks all right and i knew it was a phenomenal property it checked Mm -hmm. all the boxes that he wanted and he started digging into it he's like yeah man we should really go look at it (laughs) and i was like oh do you think it's good he's like yeah let's go look at it and voila, there it is. <laughs> That's great. Now, um, land's an awesome investment, and you get to enjoy it, too, yeah. so it's, uh, it's twofold. Yeah, exactly. But the, the point of that story is I had hunted 
in the last uh, nine years of my life, I've hunted 18 different properties. So, and they're all based on location and proximity to my house. Um, mm-hmm. And it's all been, you know, through college, you're hunting different pieces that you gain permission on and then lose permission. Then you're hunting public. And are you home or are you, you know, at college or wherever? And then you come back and then, you you know, you get a lease and you move into a different house. And now you're hunting different pieces of public. And then you go, then I bought a house and now I'm hunting different pieces. So for me, it's just been like a roller coaster. But it's it's been fun because I've experienced a lot of different types of property and scouted and hunted a lot of different types. Now that I'm finally kind of settled where I am right now, I got 6,000 public acres that I can kind of roam around on, and I'm learning more and more about every year. And then I got, uh, you know, the 100 acres that my family owns now that I'm really trying to trying to figure that out. My, my hope for that 100 acres is that it kind of becomes a meat locker for me, and I can just go out there and shoot some does every year. At right. Least, you know, <laughs> like – just fill the freezer in, in September when season opens, so I just have it full for the year, and then I can just focus on trying to kill those bucks. Yeah, you can't um, beat that. That's a perfect, perfect scenario. Right? Yeah. If I ever, if I ever get it to that status, I'll, I'll give you a ring, Jake, and let you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. The out of the out of state the out of state licenses in Wisconsin they're only 150 bucks, and for my county, you with your with your tag, you get four doe tags. Oh my gosh! So, wow. Yeah, see, it's so it's and you can get more too. You can apply for more as well if you like, you know. And then you have landowner tags on top of that. You can that you can apply for as well, which is like, you know, outrageous. There's just a lot of a lot of deer, and it's a CWD zone, so they just want you to shoot everything you see. And from my trail cameras, like there are plenty of does to shoot, except for when I'm in a tree stand, and uh, <laughs> in there, like I'm ready to kill one. <laughs> that's that's how it always works, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. Um all right, well, you know, next time uh we're rolling up on on time here. I don't want to make this too long. I know you have other things to get to, but I do want to give me like give me your elk hunt in under 5 minutes. What was that? Yeah. Like? What was that like? So, I had a buddy from Kentucky um say that you know, I guess originally it was kicking around some ideas to go elk hunting, and then I had a buddy from Kentucky say, hey, um, I know of uh, an old-timer that's going out this year. They've gone for, I don't know, 20-some years, and they usually fill their tag. This is going to be the last year, so, you know, they're they're inviting me, and, you know, do you want to go? So I said, yeah, for sure. So we go out to um, uh, over-the-counter unit in Colorado, and I think we hunted for, I don't know, 11 or 12 days. And covered, okay. I think it's ten, 10 days of actual hunting, actually, I think. And we covered 90 miles, and we ultimately came up with an empty tag. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it was extremely, yeah. extremely challenging. I mean, I don't know for sure that I heard a, a true, real bugle. Um, and I, I did not lay eyes on an elk myself. So it's, uh, oh, really? it was def- yeah, it was definitely a sobering experience. And it was a situation where it was just so you could never get away from people. There's a lot of camps and stuff. So, uh, you know, if we hoof in one particular uh, morning, we hoofed in, I don't know, five or six miles. And as soon as we get out there, it's starting to look good. And then you, you roll into a camp. So a lot of it was just a giant running <laughs> curve. And, you know, there's some things that I think probably could have done better. But for, uh, I guess, the first 
elk hunt, it was just a major learning curve. And there's a, there's a lot to be learned, and I, I do look forward to going back out there. Um, but I think I may – I probably would do over-the-counter unit in Colorado again, at least – that's what I think. But then the flip side of it is if you can get it done there, I'm sure you can get it done anywhere. So there is the allure of going back and trying to fill a tag there. But I also probably need to be realistic with myself and put myself in a better <laughs> uh, scenario to have some success. Yeah, man. I've So I've been on three Elcons, um, and they have all just put me in a bad place. <laughs> like, <laughs> You go out there with all these ambitions, and by day three, you're like, man, why am I getting up at 3 a.m., and mm-hmm. am I even going to hear anything? Am I going to see anything? You know, I, there are multiple times when I've been out there that we've had dirt bikers come burning through when we're trying to do a set, you know, and, like, we hear a bugle. I have, I've had better luck than you because every – pretty much when I've gone, every day I've heard a bugle, a bugle, mm-hmm. um, at mm-hmm. least, but – you know, getting in on them and, and getting tight with them and actually bugling back and forth and, like, calling them and stuff like that has, has been difficult. Um, I've gotten within 50 yards of one. I, like, I could see it through some thick pine trees, but that was, you know, that was it. Um, and the the tag that I hunt is is either sex. I And I really don't. I've, you know, the first time I went there, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going for a bull. And my buddy has been there a few years, and his family has been going – there for like 15 years he goes he he goes nah dude you just want to shoot the first thing you see and i was like <laughs> i was like nah man like I, I i think i'm gonna hold out for a bowl by day three i was like yeah man i'm shooting anything <laughs> right <laughs> whatever um but uh but yeah i mean it is it is super humbling to because you think you're just gonna go out there rip a few bugles you're gonna hear them you're going to put some effort in and put a stock on them and kill them. And it's just not even close to exactly how it happened. Yeah. And my I'm whole thought process is too, like, yeah. you cover enough ground and, and, you know, get after it enough, you should just have some dumb luck at some point. Um, yeah. And, and that was not the case either. But, I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous out there. That was the first time in the mountains. And um, definitely fell in love with the place. But I think uh, – yeah, it's a giant learning curve, kind of like you mentioned. Yeah, the uh, so it's unfortunate for you that the dumb luck thing, because the three times I've been out there, uh, two I go out with a group of four guys, and uh, two times, yeah, two of the times were just dumb luck that you just spend time enough enough time out there that we weren't even calling or anything, and all of a sudden we were in out. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then one guy shot one, you know, so right. out of the, the four guys that we were like two years that I went four guys for each year, one guy got one, you know, and then you split up the meat for everybody who pack it out and everything like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's super, and that's like the dumb luck thing, but it is, it is so humbling. <laughs> yeah. To say uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're, you're into it and, and, you know, you see all these people doing, like, um, the fitness stuff and all that for hunting, and you're like, man, I walk to a tree stand, and, <laughs> and that's, that's what I do. And then you get out there, you're like, oh, okay, I can see why you want to do some cardio before you get out there. Right. Yeah, no, that um, was definitely yeah. I, 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 eye-opening. Um, I did, I hiked, um, leading up to that, I hiked probably three or four miles every night for about 25 to 30 days leading up to that. 
And okay. I, I think did, and I think we did pretty okay for, I guess, lack of preparation. But, uh, yeah, you're definitely right. There's uh, <laughs> some validity to being prepared for that. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I found is that, like, being a, mainly a whitetail hunter, like, I always want to get to, like, a spot. Like, I, mm-hmm. I coined the term myself. I call it, like, destination hunting. Like, I'm trying mm-hmm. to get to this area and then get set up and I'm and I'm ready, right? Because that's what we do as whitetail hunters. But I feel like elk hunting, I mean, I've learned this over the last three years, it has absolutely nothing to do with destination hunting, really, and you're, like, nomadic hunting. And you're just always mm-hmm. wandering around and moving and calling and, and staying mobile the whole time, right? Do you yeah, feel that? Yeah, really good way to put it. Okay. Yeah, because that was my, like, come going back and just, like, thinking about it. I'm like, man, like, this is a totally different way of hunting. And the other thing is you hunt all day. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, need, you don't need to just hunt mornings and evenings. And, in fact, like, a lot of times it's better to hunt midday because less people are out and maybe you catch a bugle and then it's, you know, you're not fighting other hunters to go chase them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, man, well, that's, that's all I got. So, uh, before we sign off here, can you tell everybody how to find you, how to find Exodus, yeah. how to find you? Yeah, you can find Exodus on ExodusOutdoorGear.com, um, Instagram, Facebook. It's just Exodus Trail Cameras. Our podcast is Trail Cam Radio. And then you can find me on Instagram, just Jake Hofer. All right. And Hofer spells H-O-F-E-R, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Make sure I get that right. All right. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate having you on. And, uh, until next time, we'll probably, I'll try to probably try to get you back on like in August or September before season starts and give everybody kind of uh, a refresh on where to put your camera and to go buy a bunch of, right? (laughs) No, we, uh, (laughs) definitely appreciate it. Thanks for having us on and happy to hop on anytime. All right. I'll catch you later, Jake. Appreciate it.